Welcome to Culture Conversations, a podcast that helps disciples make disciples in today's world. I'm Chris Moran, host of Culture Conversations, and today you'll be hearing from Justin Coxum, one of the pastoral elders of Eternal City Church. You'll hear Justin's conversion story, his transition from a historic black church to a multi-ethnic contemporary church, what motivates Justin to be so in tune with the culture, and how to navigate with wisdom the strife and tension within the culture that we see playing out daily. All right, so we are here. We're here. We are here. Brother, thank you so much for doing this. I appreciate it. And I want our people to get a flavor for your life, man, what it was like. You're not from Pittsburgh originally. Mm -hmm. So my hopes is you could start way back to your city of origin, talk a little bit about your childhood, and then what was your journey like from childhood? Were you in a Christian home, non-Christian home? Uh, What were your influences Christian-wise when you were little? And then up to the point of conversion, what were the details surrounding that uh, event in your life? If there was a specific event you could point to. Sure. So I guess my city of origin is actually Minneapolis, Minnesota. That's where I was born. And we lived there real briefly, Uh, moved to Richmond, Virginia for another brief stint. I think we moved uh, from there when I was about three years old. Okay. So we spent a couple years in Richmond. And then I spent almost my entire childhood uh, right outside St. Louis, Missouri in a suburb called St. Charles. So uh, St. Charles is probably like Monroeville. It's that kind of first major suburb right outside the city. Uh, in the early 90s when we were living there, it was the the expansion of the suburban metropolis. Mm. So like we lived in a, uh, a a little neighborhood where you would drive to it and you'd be passing like farms and all types of stuff. And then you just hit this neighborhood that's expanding with all these houses that look just like yeah. each other. And now you go there today, just like you go to Monroeville and it's its almost own little city within itself. Sure. So we were kind of p- part of the suburban uh, boom that was happening in the early 90s. And growing up in, in the St. Louis area, um, my family, I'd say, my family was definitely, I never remember, remember a time where we didn't go to church. Okay. And I never remember a time where my parents didn't emphasize the importance of going to church and, and, and being a Christian. Um, two-parent home? Two-parent home. Yep. Yep. Both my mom and my dad. Uh, my brother, older brother, older than me by two years, uh, was, was the basic cast of characters we had in the house. Okay. So I never remember a time when we were Christianity or being a Christian wasn't a thing that was important to our family. Mm. And, um, I would say that probably around, and I, I also never remember a time where I didn't think that that was a good thing mm. and desire to be a Christian or desire to follow godly principles for my life. But I would say probably around seventh grade, um, I remember becoming distinctly aware of the guilt of my sin. Mm. And so what that led to was me trying to reconcile this idea that I'm a sinner and I'm guilty of things that I know seem to be naturally occurring within me. Like I naturally desire to do things that I know are contrary Mm. to God's will. And so that idea really weighed on me. And I remember distinctly one day to the other, um, you could call it a conversion, if you will, where I asked God to help me with that. Mm. And I was like, God, I think only you can be the one to deliver me from my desires that, that I know are contrary to your will. And so that was, was, was the closest thing I could probably point to as a conversion. Seventh grade? Seventh grade, yeah. And it wasn't like part of a church service. It wasn't mm. part of a, 
you know, Sunday school class. I, I, and I had been in church services and been in Sunday school classes and all that stuff. But I remember just at one point in my own kind of seventh grade prayer time yeah, yeah. that I had probably before I went to bed or just something. And I was like, God, I really need you to help me with this. And from that moment distinctly on, I do remember, and it carries with me till this day, uh, a desire to know God, mm. to pray, to read the Bible, um, and a a specific desire against the things that I knew were not, that were sin, yeah. right? So, um, and also this inward assurance that mm. God was with me and that he was for me, that he wanted me to be righteous, that he wanted to help me live according to the Bible and live a holy life. Mm. And that was really helpful because I think uh, I, I always knew things were wrong. I always knew a, a basic idea of right and wrong, but I didn't have an idea of the love of God that existed for me until that time. And so, like I said, it's with me to this day, this kind of unshakable, and, and certainly it ebbs and flows, but this unshakable sure. idea that in Christ I'm loved and I'm accepted and I, I get to now pursue a life of holiness out of that place mm. as opposed to thinking like, does he love me? Does he not? Yeah. Yeah. You know, am I, am I really a Christian? Am I not? Like I, I, I never really after that time doubted, uh, my standing with God. Mm. What was your church experience like up until that point? Was it what we would call now gospel centered? Was mm-hmm. it more, you know, typical nineties, if you will, evangelicalism? What was it yeah. in your experience? So the church I attended, um, first Baptist church of Chesterfield was a, uh, Baptist church, hence the name. And it, we didn't be, I don't, I always get this wrong, so I'm not going to say whether we did or not, but we functioned like a Southern Baptist church. Okay. So a uh, uh, high view of the scripture, um, very specific focus on conversion, evangelism, mm. holiness, like all that stuff. And it was an all black church. Okay. So, and, and, and that was in its history. Like it was founded on a former, I think, slave plantation mm. and has existed for a long time as a church that specifically serves African-Americans in mm. the St. Louis area. Um, and the gospel was always clearly preached. Um, and I'm very, very fortunate for that and, and say that it's, would say that it's, it's absolutely, uh, critical to my spiritual formation, even though, you know, when you're growing up, you're that kid that's falling asleep in the pews oh, yeah. and, you know, your mom has to hit you and shut up, wake you stop. up. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do remember one time my mom, cause I used to fall asleep all the time. She's like, yeah, they called you to the front for a prize, but you were asleep. So you missed it. And I was like, no. <laughs> So yeah, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're back there drawn on the program oh, yeah. and you don't think you're getting anything out of it, but you know, you hear the, the, the good news, the gospel, you hear the Bible preached week in and week out faithfully yeah. and it, it definitely has an effect. Did, did they have what we would, well, in my, in my experience growing up, we had what was called Sunday school. Mm-hmm. So like there was a portion of the morning worship gathering where the kids would exit from the parents and we would get our own little instruction time mm-hmm. here at ECC. It's called ECC kids mm-hmm. for the, you know, the most young who can comprehend. We didn't have that mm. until like right after I aged out of it. So okay. as the church kind of got bigger and, and maybe you could say got more contemporary programming involved, yeah. uh, we got uh, the idea of children's church where I think it was like three Sundays out of the month, they would go downstairs and have their own specific service mm-hmm. where, you know, someone would, would give them a message that was to the level of a six to 12 year old. Yeah. But when I was growing up, there was not, there wasn't that. So you were hearing everything the adults were hearing. We had, it was called like, the children's time, okay. which was like five minutes within the service where we'd all come to the front yeah. and they would tell a little parable for the children and they might give us like a lollipop or something. Yeah. So we had children's time, 
but we never had when I was growing up any idea of children's church. Mm, so like, yeah, I sat with my parents every week, week in, week out, and you know it's a black church, so we're we're in there from nine thirty to twelve, like you know, yeah. really really yeah. going for it. And I, I to this day would say that that was very critical to my spiritual formation. Yeah, you know, you could say that perhaps maybe everything that was said I didn't comprehend as a child, but even just learning to sit and obey and. Mm-hmm. Respect your parents, respect adults, you know, realize that when we come to worship God, it's not about me and it's not about what I want to do in that moment, but there's something bigger than myself happening here. Mm. And I think even as a kid, I I really appreciate having that. Yeah. Like looking back, able to process it. And it's interesting. John Piper said that when we read the Bible, it's doing more than we perceive. Mm -hmm. Like we're reading it, we're taking it in, but you know, I, I've read through how many Psalms in the past month and I can't really pinpoint only a very few specific things that I was yeah. like, it's memorable and it stands out to me, yep. but it's, it's doing more to me yeah. than what I perceive in the moment or can remember. Yeah. And that's probably your experience, you know, yeah. like more was happening than you realize. Absolutely. Formationally. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very formational. And you know, even, uh, the idea that we dressed up every Sunday, mm. like we wore a full suit yeah. and that's kind of, I think in, in a lot of circles, not just in contemporary churches, but a lot of churches in general are kind of moving away from that. Mm-hmm. But there was this idea growing up that like, if you're going to come to this worship service, like we need to be on our best and mm-hmm. we need to put our best. And, and it was a reverence that I, that I appreciate. And, and not that I say that that's the only way, right? right. But I, I do just appreciate a lot of those things that I think maybe now are a little bit less trendy um, growing up. Uh, you know, th- th- they were very helpful to me as a kid. Yeah. So coming to that point in seventh grade where I'm like feeling this weight of guilt about sin, I know kind of intuitively that I don't have to turn to, you know, uh, myself or my grades or find some other way to affirm my worth and my value yeah. as a person. I can turn to God and I can call the name of the Lord. Yeah. And I remember like really simple children's messages like that, where that's all mm. they tried to hammer home was like, if you're in distress, you should call on call on Jesus' name. You know all the real simple songs you used to sing as a kid. Yeah. And it and it in that moment in seventh grade, I was like, I think this is what I should do. And and it, so those five minute times were really really helpful and informative yep. for you. Yep, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And when I see kids, when I see people today, you know, raising and rearing their children, or when we do ECC kids, like you never know mm. that one thing that you say that sticks with someone. Yeah. That later on in life, you know, as the proverb says, train up a child in the way they go, they won't stray away from it. You could have been, or we could have made that one sentence or that one, the one thing that stuck with them that when they really could articulate and think about it, had them turn to Christ. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Man. Yeah. Question for you. So I've talked to several African-American friends and they've had similar experience of you. And then they get into this space where all of a sudden they're being taught by a white person mm-hmm. and it's weird to them. And they're like, Whoa, you know, I, I remember one guy saying to me, I was saying to myself, wow, I'm sitting here and there's a white guy teaching me. This is really happening. And to him, it was shocking. Mm-hmm. And to me, I'm thinking like, huh, that's, I've never had an experience like that. Mm-hmm. Did anything like that ever happen to you growing up in a traditional black Baptist church? Is there ever a moment where you're like, huh, this is out of my experience here. Yeah. Not until I went to college. Okay. So I went, so from age five to 18, we were in the same church, um, almost exclusively black. And that was its mission. And, and 
you know, all, like I said, all the way in its history. Mm-hmm. But when I went to college, I went to a school that was in a very rural community, so kind of way outside of the Kansas City area. So there wasn't really an option as far as church attendance goes. Yeah. So I went to a pretty contemporary, like, you know, multi-service Baptist church where it was in a military community. So it was a fairly mixed congregation, but probably about 70% white people just because okay. of the nature of it being rural Missouri. Mm-hmm. And I remember, yeah, going to service the first time people are wearing jeans. It's relaxed. Like there's cushy chairs. People are laid back. Your church had the wooden pews growing up. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was wooden pews. They had the cushion on them, but okay. still like, you know, they were, it was a big pew. Like there mm-hmm. wasn't this idea of like individual chairs Yeah, yeah. and you know, you had the little communion cups in the back of the pews, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Oh, yeah. And so just going to a place that looked a little bit more like a coffee shop mm. where it was relaxed and, and they wanted to create that aesthetic. Uh, that was different for sure. And I went with some guys who I knew from, from, uh, the football team and like, People are like, you know, singing songs that kind of sound like stuff on the radio, like the sound of it. There's no choir. Yeah. There's guitars. It's like, it, it was very weird mm-hmm. to experience that as, as an 18 year old to go to church with. And it's funny. Uh, some of these friends, like uh, when, when they both said, I was like, oh, these guys are Christians too. And we went to church and it was just clear that like the way we expressed ourselves was completely mm-hmm. different. Um, not for not, not making a value statement on that, mm-hmm. but it was yeah, just yeah. like, yeah, this is, this is. Clearly, when they say Christian and I say Christian, we express those terms very yeah. differently. Yeah, I, I've been to, being in the hip-hop community, I've been to many, many, what you would say, traditional black churches. Mm-hmm. And some with choirs, some with unchoirs. And yeah, there is, bro, like, you go into a, a conservative Presbyterian church, right. and you're singing from a hymnal, and people don't even look uh-huh. up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then you go to, you know, a traditional black, and people are dancing, and yep. like, moving around, and, yep. and, and it's a very different experience. Mm-hmm. It is very different. Yep. Even in our contemporary circles where, you know, we do a, a blended, you know, style of worship, yeah. people express themselves in worship very, very differently. Mm-hmm. And your the value statement thing was very good. It's not saying right. this is better or this is worse. Yeah. It just is very different. It is very different. And I, I, I appreciated it. Yeah. And I appreciated getting to learn from and kind of see and partake in things that were different, that stretched me, that shaped me, that helped me kind of grow as a believer, because like I said, as, as, as in the church setting I grew up in, and I think this was a good thing, it was very much hammered into me that like church is not about you. Mm. So if you're a kid and you want to like run around and color, we're not going to do that because we're here to worship God. Yeah, and it's yeah. not about you. And I very much appreciate that message. Whereas when I got into these contemporary spaces in college, there was a little more emphasis on like your walk with the Lord. Like, mm. how are you doing with Jesus? Are you having this like quiet time? and all these kind of individual things that I just never heard or thought about. And they were very helpful to me. And so I appreciated getting to learn from the way that the contemporary, and I'm not saying this is a pejorative, the contemporary white church, mm-hmm. there was a lot of things that were helpful. Yeah, that yeah. I, learned. And I was like, oh, I never thought about that. Like the idea of like having a devotional, mm-hmm. like it was like devotional. We never talked about that. Like I read the Bible and I prayed, but like, you know, quiet time, devotional stuff, like just, were things that wasn't were, a part of your history growing up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it was good to learn. Yeah. Yeah. That's sweet. Um, so let's go back. So you're 13, mm-hmm. you're in Missouri mm-hmm. and then you ask Jesus in your own way to help you and to mm-hmm. save you from your sins. Mm-hmm. Um, not in those, that language. What, what happened after that? Like up to college, like yeah. what was your experience like? I knew from that point on that I had an, in, that I had a, a I'll say, uh, I had a duty to myself and a duty to my church to try to live 
like Jesus. Mm. Like I knew, like if you would use the term discipleship, like I should try to live a life that would reflect. And Did you have Christ. personal discipleship? Did anyone take you under their wing? And mm. no, nope, nope. So it was you know learn, try to put into practice what you learn on Sunday. Try to mm. put into practice what you learn on Sunday school or in youth group. So we did have that. We had we had like group settings for okay. sure. Like Sunday school classes where it's about ten to twelve people. Youth group, same thing. Okay. And then Sunday, and then church service. Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I definitely had this idea that like I should try to live a godly life, and that was the I'd say seventh grade through high school. Like that was the extent of my Christianity. Was like I need to try to live like Christ by the mm-hmm. power of the Spirit. Like it wasn't a works thing. It was very much I need to grow in godliness. And so my expression of my faith was very much like trying to grow in personal holiness and trying to grow in like not doing the things I saw other people my age around me doing and mm-hmm. trying to live a life and, and certainly failing and, right. and doing things that teenagers do that weren't wise and that you all kind of look, we all kind of look back on it oh, like, yeah. oh, it was stupid. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was the, you, uh, if I were to sum it up, maybe in a sentence, it was like the staying out of trouble phase, mm. like following Christ means I, I shouldn't be getting into the same type of trouble that my friends are. Yeah. And like I said, did that look like you leaving when they went to do dirt? Like, what did it look like? Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> it looked like me knowing I should leave. Okay. And like I said, having that Holy spirit inside me that was tugging on me, yeah. it wasn't my parents. It wasn't my teachers, coaches. Like there definitely was an inward, like, Hey, I know I shouldn't be mm. a part of this. So you were very sensitive to the Holy spirit mm. after that moment of yeah. conversion. Like yeah. you really sensed the Holy spirit saying, Hey, yep. don't do this. Yep. yep. Don't walk in this way. Yep. And it wasn't like a, achievement like this is going to mess up your future it was like a, you know this is not what mm. christians do you know it was this like is this doesn't honor god maybe exactly. not in those words but yep yep exactly so there there was that tug um and i appreciated that tug because it did it didn't always like i said i i was young and hard-headed like we yeah. all are but I, I did i did appreciate having that tug to keep me on the right path i mean that's proverbs right how does a young man stay pure to hide mm-hmm. hide his word in your heart yeah and it was it was it was there and it helped me a lot as a young man as young young teenagers trying to grow up. Okay. Yeah. So from there, how did you end up in this like suburb college? Like what what was the event surrounding that? So I um, ever since I can remember as a kid was very into sports. Um, we always played. We had a basketball hoop in our front yard. We were playing basketball all the time. Me and my brother. Um, we played sports probably year round. You know, from the time I was growing up. Organized. Organized. Mm-hmm. Organized and unorganized. Okay. Um, and I, for college, got the opportunity to get recruited to play football. Nice. And the school you get a scholarship. That, mm-hmm, nice. The school that, that I went to was in like our like I said a, r- a real rural part of Missouri. Um, so that's what that's what kind of got me into wanting to really seriously explore college because I was never, and and to this to this day and maybe never like the person who's like really crazy about school mm. and I wasn't at that time. You weren't academic. I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't like a, a real rock star of a student and so sports were my ticket to, yeah, yeah. to I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't make it out like I was an average student, I'll okay. say that. Like, you know, a C minus, B, mm-hmm. C minus, B minus kind of guy but what really made me like want to go to college was the idea of playing a sport mm. and so that's what, that's what took me to uh, Central Missouri State which was like I said, a kind of a rural campus mm-hmm. in the middle of nowhere. So, but it was military, so there was a diversity of people. Yeah, to there some was, degree. It was next to a military base, Whitman Air Force Base. So, just ba- based off the nature of that, 
Um, it was a college town, but then, like I said, you have military influence, so you have people who are from all over the country and world sometimes mm-hmm. who are there associated with the Air Force Base. So it made the town a little diverse, but, I mean, your, your closest major town is Kansas City, and that's like mm-hmm. an hour and a half away. Yeah. So you really are like, to get there, you just go on the highway for three hours, and then you get off at the exit, and that's... And then that's if you want to get there. to you want to get to Kansas City, you go on the highway for another half an hour, and then you get you're, you're hitting into another major uh, metro area. Yeah. But yeah, it's a it's a it's kind of a small small college town. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the South is an interesting place. You know, you've been in Pittsburgh for what two three years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the stories I hear, and being in the South just for vacations and stuff, it's a very different place than the North. Um, and and. The race thing is much more prevalent. I don't mm-hmm. know. Maybe maybe I'm just projecting this, but it seems more prevalent mm-hmm. in the South and more pronounced than it is in the North. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Did you experience any of that coming into college or growing up? Like, did you experience any tension? I did, and even be growing. St. Louis is a. It's not a. It's not quite a southern town, but it's it's definitely got its own racial history and tension. Okay. I mean, Ferguson, right? Yeah. In 2014, yeah. that's a St. Louis neighborhood. Uh, so even growing up, I had some, but it was a suburb. So people are a little more polite okay. and it's a little more veiled and it's a little more, uh, uh, covered up with, you could say niceness. But when I got to college, a lot of my friends are from Southern Missouri. So like the Ozarks, Lake of the Ozarks area, Branson, where they come from towns where like they didn't meet a black person until they got to college. Mm. And so I had people that would tell me like, Hey, like I have members of my family that are like textbook racist, like. I can't bring a black person home to date as a friend. Like they don't want black people around. And that's the first time I was exposed to maybe the most overt forms of like, yeah, I have people in my family that don't like black people or people in my family that are regularly referring to black people as racial slurs and other things. So yeah, that was the first time I would say. Was that shocking or did you know that existed? No, I knew it existed. (laughs) It's funny because um, my parents would even warn me Mm. growing up, like, you know, if you ever are driving through the southern part of the state, like don't don't stop at a rest stop or be very careful if you stop at a rest stop because you are in, you know, a place that's a little more overtly racist where people um, have a more outward uh, hatred towards black people that could be expressed towards you. Mm. So my dad tells me stories about people, um, you know, trying to run him off the road <laughs> when he would be mm. driving through the southern part of the state. And, um, yeah, just stuff like that. And, and they were always like, yeah, just, just be careful because it's, it's much more in other parts of the state, like, okay to be outwardly hostile to black people. Yeah. Yeah. Because so. it, there are certain pockets, I would say even around here mm-hmm. where it's, it's more of a, like, you know, I go, I go out East pretty often. I go into the country for my job yep. and you can, you can tell like, okay, this is an area that is not as favorable. At least it feels that way. I could be judging wrongly, but I would, if I put myself in your place, I wouldn't feel comfortable there. And I've tried to do that. I've tried to be like, all right, how would I perceive this area if I were not who I am? And I would be like, I would feel uncomfortable, you know, rebel flag over there on that house. And I don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable here. Um, anyway, did, how did your parents coach you? Like, did they, was that the extent of their coaching? Like, did they say, look, the world is a, is a crazy place or was it kind of like just those little warning, like, Hey, in this part of town, just be careful. Mm-hmm. Like, how did they coach you? No, they coached me even growing up. Um, we, like I said, we were in a suburban context for the most part. 
So the schools I went to were, were mostly white. So in, in a lot of classes and settings, I'm one of a few or maybe the only black person. Okay. And they were just like, be, be on your best behavior because whatever you do will stand out. Mm. Because a lot of people aren't exposed to or know black people apart from what they see on the news, apart from what yeah. they see on TV, which is unfortunately a lot of times a negative stereotype. So if you act ignorantly it's going to fit a narrative that people have already been told about black people, which is unfortunate, which is sinful, which is, you know, all the things we could say about it. And so even growing up, it was, um, you can't run and do the things the crowd does because it will have a disproportionately negative effect on you. Mm. For other kids, it's boys being boys. But when you get in trouble, you're the, the rebellious black kid that we've seen on TV. You're the thug, right? Um, To put it in a, in a, in a uh, G-rated version, yeah, right? yeah. You're, 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 you're not just, you know, boys being boys. You're the thug when you mm-hmm. get in trouble. So, mm-hmm. so be on your best behavior. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was good. It kept me out of trouble a lot of times. Not all the time. Uh, I should have, but a lot of times. And yeah, even into college, it was, you know, be careful. Um, if you find yourself like going to the Southern parts of the state, cause we would go on road trips for football to mm-hmm. towns like Joplin, Missouri, down in the Southern part of the state. And it was, yeah, be careful because mm-hmm. not everybody is, is open to the idea of black people being in their town or in their, in their space mm-hmm. because some people just like the way of life they have. So yeah. I remember one particular time, uh, some friends of mine in the, I'm not an outdoorsman person, but it was just spring break and we had nothing else to do. They wanted to go on a fishing trip. And these were three white guys that I met through the football team. And they were like, yeah, come with us. It's, it's in, I forget even the state park. Um, but it was in the Southern part of the state mm-hmm. and my parents were like, yeah, like, I don't think they told me no, but they were just like, do you really want to do that? Mm. Did you and go? I didn't. And it was out of abundance of caution. Like, one, I'm not an outdoorsman to begin with. Sure. So, like, that, that has its It wasn't own. super appealing to begin with. It was just, I was bored, right? It's spring break, yeah. you're a college student, you're broke. So it's like, oh, I'm going to do something. I want to yeah. do something. But they were, they were, I think, out of abundance of caution. Like, yeah, be careful. You know, that could, that could be something that doesn't have a a great return for the amount of, uh, for what you're investing in, right? You yeah. don't like fishing to begin with. So why put yourself at risk in a place where you know yeah. you could run into something and all these, none of the friends I was with were aware of that. Mm. Like they were just like, why, why wouldn't you go? Like, you know, we're going to go fishing. Like we're going to go, you know, do what we do. But they hadn't even considered like, yeah, for you, it's fine to be out in the open in a place like that. But for me, yeah. I could face other consequences. Yeah. And interestingly, there's people and, and I, I was, I'll put myself in this camp for many years. You know, you're, you're part of like an invisible majority culture. Mm-hmm. And so when, when, you know, people might say to you, hey, you're, you know, your culture does this. And you're like, what culture? You right. know, like, what do you mean? Right. And it's kind of confusing. You're yeah. like, this is our, like, this is our culture. Yeah. But it's not technically. Right. It is and it isn't our right. culture. Right. And you're right. I think that, you know, the, the, the experience of minority culture is very different. Mm-hmm. And I think that the majority culture projects their experience immediately onto minority cultures. Right. And it's just not, it's right. not, you can't do that. Right. So the thinking's different. The perception's different. The right. caution is different. Right. You know, so for example, with, you know, the recent uh, tragedy with Ahmaud Arbery, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have done worse, way worse than him. You right. know, like if he, if he did look in a project, a, a 
construction site right. and was right. looking in the window or went in even. Right. Like, bro, I've been, I've, I've went into abandoned buildings and stolen things. Right. That was my childhood. That's right. what I did. I right. went into people's garages and stole stuff. And I never feared like I'm going to get shot for this. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, we would steal gas cans and yeah. we would steal. Yep. I mean, I did that all the time and never had the fear of like, you know, I'm going to get repercussions for this because of my actions mm-hmm. or because of my ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Just, I, I experienced the world in such a different way. So, you know, when that happened to him, so let's say he did look into, uh, you know, a construction site or went in and, and I've done those same things a hundred times. times. Yeah. Like we've, you know, when I was a kid, we harassed the police and ran many, many, yeah. many, many times when yeah. I was a kid. Yeah. And, and we just ran and had fun. We yeah. laughed, you know, it was, but it is a different experience. And I think it's helpful for people to know that, that we don't experience the world in the same way. Yeah. So my parents have never coached me like that. Yeah. I've never had a coaching session, if we can even call it that, a warning sure. session. Sure. Where my parents were like, look, you know, you're going, you know, not, not even about Wilkinsburg or Homewood, like the reverse. It, mm-hmm. it was never, mm-hmm. I've never got a warning uh, about that. Yeah. And we, I remember we talked about that. A few weeks ago, I think it was the Sunday after the the shooting or the the publicity around the shooting was getting out there. Um, I remember it was last October. I was visiting a friend in Dallas, Texas. He lives in a a new kind of, you know, suburban development. So there's a lot of construction going on. And I got up in the morning, went for a run. And I was coming back because I usually walk the last half a mile just to kind of catch my breath. Mm -hmm. And I walked by some construction sites and I was like, man, I kind of want to go in there and just look at yeah, it. Yeah, see how it's being built. And I, you know, like I've been saying, I hear the voice of my parents mm. dating all the way back. I hear my own kind of internal conscious being like, you're in a neighborhood in Texas. You don't know any of these people around you. My friend who's black, he's one of the only black families in this, in this suburban development. Like if someone sees you in there, you just don't know what could happen. And I'm not I'm automatically jumping to the conclusion that I'm only scared that someone would, would kill me as much as like, I will stand out if mm. I'm in this house and if I'm just poking around and I just don't want that trouble yeah. and I don't want that. And it's unfortunate, but it's also wise. Like I think it's, it's Proverbs. Like, you know, if you see a band of young men saying we're going to round up and, and go out and start committing things, don't join them. Right. And I think even for black people, we have to have that emphasized pretty strongly because we stick out. And so in a lot of places, even today, I just, try to exercise caution and mm. wisdom. And I think it is, it's good for us to understand that. I agree. You know, we have different, just like women, you know, talking to my wife about what it's like for her to walk alone. Like right. I don't think about right. people harassing me or cat calling me when I walk, but a lot of women do. Yeah. So I think it's, it's wise that we just try to understand yeah. each other's experiences. Yeah. That's really helpful. So you're, you're admonishing and I'm admonishing in a gentle way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Get into the shoes of other people mm-hmm. because it's really helpful. Right, you know, right. don't project your experience or your, just cause it didn't happen to you. Doesn't mean it didn't happen to someone else. Just right. cause it wouldn't happen to you. Doesn't mean it wouldn't happen to someone right. else. Right. And it, it is really helpful just for common human decency. Yeah. Uh, not to speak of loving your neighbor as yourself, mm-hmm. uh, to, to really try to, so like I, I, I did not used to do this honestly until we started the church mm-hmm. and we started um, seeing the fruit of a core commitment of unifying people. Mm-hmm. And so I would go on trips with people who were not my ethnicity and I would, I would ask like, all right, how, how would this person be experiencing this time right now? And sure. I remember um, going into a Sheets gas station out in the country mm-hmm. 
And, and I remember thinking like, all right, I'm going to intentionally notice who's in this store mm-hmm. before I wouldn't, I would just go in, I would get my whatever, you know, energy drink and my burrito and I'd be out. Yeah. So I looked and I was like, all right, I see that person looks like they're from Asia. That looks like a, Me- a Mexican ethnicity, a couple white people. Okay. And so I came out and I did an experiment and I, in the car, when we got back in, I said, Hey, did anyone notice who was in there? Mm-hmm. Two white people in the car. What do you mean? Right. Right. Yeah. Black person in the car. Yep. yep. Every ethnicity was noticed. Mm-hmm. And I think it just proves, and I wouldn't have noticed unless I was intentional. Mm-hmm. There is a different experience of the world. Mm-hmm. Why, why is that? Like, is it just because, uh, is it a culture, majority, m- minority culture? What is it? How do you think through that? Um, there's an interesting, um, description in Exodus where Pharaoh is seeing the Israelites grow in number and he's like, if they keep growing, they're going to outnumber us. Mm -hmm. And I think that begins the Egyptian oppression of the Israelites Mm -hmm. is a fear of being outnumbered. And I think most minorities are aware of that because in a lot of scenarios, especially if you go to a place where you're a minority, you're aware of being outnumbered. Mm. And I think it's just a, it's a survival instinct almost. It's like who, and we don't, I don't think you just think about it. Like I said, in terms of ethnicity, I think a lot of women think about that. Yeah, sure. I mean, am I going to go in a gas that. station where there's just a bunch of men? And if something goes off, you know, am I going to be able to have someone who, who's, who's going to understand or be able to help me? Um, or do I need to go in here with my husband or another mm. man to help me? So I think it's, it's an instinct that we have, especially as people who um, have been historically vulnerable because of our skin color, because of our ethnicity. I think it's, 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 it's something that we just kind of naturally do. Mm. And I definitely have thought that too. Yeah. It's like, and, and I don't, it's not like a, you know, I, I calculate out and then leave the parking lot if I don't see enough of a certain right, right. skin color, but, but you do notice I'm aware. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. I'm aware of my surroundings for sure. Yeah. 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 And I think that is a big difference and maybe, maybe I'm not trying to speak for all sure. European ethnicities. Right. You know, I, right. I come from Ireland and right. Germany, right. but I, I certainly have noticed that, and I've done experiments <laughs> just to see. Mm-hmm. And and what I'm noticing is that we do, we really do experience the world in different ways. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not always helpful to say, "Well, why can't you just experience the world like me?" Right, right. Because it, it, if we pull that back to uh, a, a Christian lens experiencing the world like me isn't synonymous with experiencing the world the way Jesus intends mm. for people to experience. And I think anybody, anybody of any ethnicity who says that should be very careful mm. that we're not, uh, that we're not importing our worldview as the exclusive Christian worldview, because I would say almost all the time it's broader than what we think. Absolutely. And it's, it's more all encompassing than what we think. So yeah. and for, just for the simple fact that there's, you know, seven ha- or six habitable continents. Right. You know, and, right. and pro- there's always projects on Antarctica, you know, yeah. a thousand or two thousand, three thousand people there. But still, that mm-hmm. the Christian experience in other countries is very different, different. than yeah. your yeah. local right. experience. Right. And that's God's glory too, right? Exactly. God is the God of, he, he, he is clearly not the God of sameness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just look at the bug world or the bird world or yeah. the, the food world. And the, you look at the people world mm-hmm. and it's, I, I, think it's satanic that Satan has put us against each other because of our differences where God's intent was glory and truly unity in diversity. Yes. You know, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, every people gathered around the throne, all praising the same God, uh, father, God, the son, God, the Holy spirit. Mm -hmm. And, and it's a beautiful picture. Mm -hmm. 
the, the, the distinctness is still there. Mm-hmm. Every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people. But the, the unity yeah. is there yeah. that we're not experiencing here. Yeah. Uh, and so I think God's intent in, in the diversity is his glory. Mm-hmm. Satan twists it and makes us tribalize to our particular either ideology yeah. or ethnicity yeah. or worldview. And then we kind of war against each other. Yeah. And I think it's satanic. Yeah, and you know, th- this, I hope, is an effort to break down some of those satanic strongholds. And I think we could be that bold with the language. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think... There's, there's tons of ways that the satanic influence or, or I mean, yeah, the, the non-Christ influence, which is satanic, right? The satanic influence. Following the prince of the power of the world, the kingdom of who is not working, sons of disobedience. We all oh, lived yeah. among them at one, one time. time. Yeah. 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 I think that can be, it's expressed in a lot of different ways and it, it's, it's manifold and it's shifting all the time. And I think we, unless we're pulling specifically pushing into being Christ-like and pursuing unity amongst diversity in all the ways that Christ-likeness can express itself, I think we're, we have to be so careful Mm. Um, because it can even express itself through sameness, right? That, you know, to be a Christian is to be this way or to be this type of person. A mold, a pattern. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's very, I think, prevalent today because there is so much power when people come together. I mean, that's, mm. you could even say that's some of the, the kind of explanation of the story of the tower of Babel is like, they were unified. unified. Yeah. Absolutely unified. Yeah. Yeah. And even, you know, acts getting there, believers being one on one mm-hmm. accord. And, and acts too, that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's when the it's added to their number daily, daily because of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's powerful. Yeah. I agree, bro. Yeah. And, and so you're, what you're saying there, I think is Satan sees the unity as a threat mm-hmm. if it's directed towards God's God. purposes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. That's good. That's good. Yeah. So let's go back. We can visit this again mm-hmm. later. Yeah. Let's go back to your, your college days. Mm-hmm. So you're in college. Um, what was that like? And then, you know, maybe into how you met your wife. Yeah. College was the first time that I think my walk as a Christian shifted from, I need to, as an individual, uh, live a godly life to there's this, you, you could, I think a good term is the kingdom of God, right? Mm-hmm. There's this kingdom of God. There's this, another word would be missional. There's this mm-hmm. mission of God that exists that I, as a Christian also should be involved with. Mm-hmm. So in college, I got involved with this ministry called FCA fellowship of Christian yeah. athletes. And it was my first real, and you used the word earlier, first real experience with what you would maybe call discipleship, Mm. like having a small group of people or maybe one other person check in with me on how my individual walk with Jesus was going. It was very beneficial. I loved it. Uh, FCA, what FCA did was say, okay, we have this group of people who have this common experience. They're all athletes. Mm -hmm. How do we apply the Bible and the teachings of Jesus to the everyday life of an athlete? And I think it was very helpful because it made me understand like, oh, there is this mission where God desires to take me in my everyday, you know, life mm-hmm. as a student athlete and infuse the gospel into that. And not only make me a more obedient follower of Christ, but also use that to bring others into this kingdom of God that's different than the kingdom of the world. And that's mm-hmm. the, the mission, so to speak, right? That's mm-hmm. the mission aspect is that there are people who also need to be kind of brought into knowing about this kingdom yeah. and brought into applying the teachings of Jesus to the way they live as well. And I think maybe because I grew up in such a strong church, I I just never really thought about it like that, mm. that like, Oh, there's like, you know, 
there's a mission out there's a mission field out there that we could be evangelizing and welcoming people into. College was really the first time I really even heard about or got actively involved in personal evangelism. Mm. Um, the idea I always thought was like, hey, you just invite people to church and they come and they become a Christian. Yeah, yeah. Whereas it was like, oh no, I can share this Jesus with other people and I can invite them to be discipled just like I'm getting discipled. Yeah. What was their strategy? What was their method? Um, so they had what were called uh, huddles, which were SCA meetings where athletes would get together and study the Bible okay. and you know hold each other accountable. And so it was, yeah, invite someone out to an FCA huddle or start your own huddle, mm. which a friend of mine, we had one in our apartment that met and we, he would just invite people to it. Like, Hey, come, come to this Bible Like in the study. dorm room or something? Yeah. It was in our apartment. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And actually it was in the dorm sometimes too, but yeah, yeah it was guys getting together to study the Bible. And that was like something that was, that was very refreshing for me to be a part of. And I think it was, you know, it's helpful, especially a lot of people, college 18 to 22, that's that age where you kind of own your faith or you fall away from it. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, that was, that was a good next phase of growth to learn like, Oh, there's this mission, missional aspect of Christianity where I can be inviting people in to learn about Jesus and to, and to follow him. And that was, that was a a really sweet season of, of following the Lord for sure. So the, um, there, there's different methods of evangelism, right? Yeah. So you can be the, the bomber on the street with the tracks and you can like, you know, hit someone with the gospel. And yeah. then there's the walk through a text yeah. over a long extended yeah. period of time. Then there's a build a relationship with the yeah. person. And, yeah. um, have you seen that kind of strategy of inviting someone in, mm-hmm. you know, maybe as a skeptic or an unbeliever and just letting them process through study? Have you seen that fruitful? Uh, I think of what I think I have, and maybe that's been the most for my personal personal experience. That's been the most fruitful because we had, I mean, we had people that would show up on our campus with a megaphone and mm. just be sharing sharing the gospel, you know, um, giving very specific, you know, fire and brimstone mm-hmm. sermons about repent, repent and yeah. believe, and, and perhaps that worked for people. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't at all um, fault that. Yeah. But what I think what was really helpful about FCA was they applied the gospel to a specific way that people were living. So athletes, mm-hmm. right? This is how it's you can... Yeah, it's contextual, exactly. This is how you can live different and reflect Jesus to other people who are on your team, right? So unselfishness, not being prideful, mm. seeking the, the benefit and serving others, right? Seeking the benefit of others, putting others above yourself. And in doing that, most times you'll stand out. Like people will naturally mm. be like, something's different about you. Yeah. And that's your opportunity to invite them into a relationship with Jesus or to tell them about Jesus. Mm. And I think that was having it explained to me that way. It made a lot of sense. And it was very natural. Mm. Um, it was very natural because you're around the same people every day and you're able to distinctly try to influence them and your influence is able to distinctly be seen for better or worse. Yeah. yeah. And so I think that kind of, uh, it, this is a very overused term, but that life on life, mm. um, I think it's a good term that life on life experience was, was very helpful. And I think it was very effective because they, we would hold each other accountable to, and we would encourage each other to live differently. And that led to people asking questions and that led to natural opportunities to share with with them about Jesus or invite them to the huddle, the Bible study that was happening at our house and Mm. and have them learn more. So there wasn't necessarily this, uh, conversion focus for the, from the first jump conversation, you know, people would be like, Oh, you, you're, you, you're different. You're doing things differently. You know, why is that? Or how is that? And then that was the opportunity to say, more of hey, a come, relational strategy. Yeah. Come learn about Jesus. Let's, let's come learn about why we decide to do things differently or why we live differently. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, people could kind of evaluate and learn on their own. And obviously you would invite them to repent, mm. but 
it wasn't like, like from the jump, from the first conversation, we're going to like give you the heaven or hell yeah, yeah. talk. And I'm not, like I said, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's uh, an exclusively bad way to do it, right. but I've just personally seen more fruit from kind of that contextual message of, of the gospel that we got to do when I was in college. Did you see people come from the huddles and the Bible studies to the church you were part of? Um, you know, that's the challenge with parachurch ministries, right? Is they're not always connected to local churches. Um, we did because there was only one church in town really that for pretty much there was one church in town that everybody went to. So it was a pretty natural connection from people to go because that was part of our little rhythm is we'd have our FCA huddle one weeknight and then we'd all go to church on Sunday, go out to eat afterwards. Like it was kind of, you know, in college you get people that you hang out with. That was Mm -hmm. part of what our group did. So there was a natural connection to the church, I think. And perhaps that's served because there was only one church in town. Yeah, yeah. And there wasn't much to do on Sundays. So it's like, all right, well, we'll go to church and then we'll go to Walmart afterwards. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of all there is to do big here. church? Yeah. Was it big? It was big because it was, the only, it was the only church that served a college town as well as a military uh, base. So they actually did have a pretty decently decent-sized membership. It was mul- I think they had multiple services. Like, it was a pretty big church. Um, but the town itself, like, there's just not much else to do. So... Makes sense. Yeah. So did you, you went from um, college to where? So right after college, I graduated and this is right at the height of the recession. 2008. 2008. Yeah. So people are graduating, um, going directly back to get their master's because there's no jobs out there. And I just had. That was like Occupy Wall Street time and all that, right? I think. Was that in 12? Yeah, 12. Occupy Wall Street was 12. But. Cause I was living in Boston when that was going okay. on, but the, regardless, like a lot of, a lot of my friends were going, just going to get their masters cause there was no jobs or they had like internships where they thought they had job offers, but then the company pulled it because mm-hmm. there's just not, the economy was, was really bad at that time. So I, um, through a, a truly providential circumstance ended up getting an opportunity to go work for a software company in Boston was where they wanted me to live. And I was like, why not? Like, what I was, was your major? Uh, marketing, business. Yes. So I was a business major and software companies at that time were trying to make a shift from being purely technical to being able to communicate with more uh, business and non-technical people. Mm. And you see that now. Like, oh, you yeah. know, Most people are using or able to do a lot of uh, things in, in the software world that they couldn't. And that's what the rise Dude, of- my son can navigate an iPhone. He's not two yet. Yep. Yep. So, you know, people, I think just with that shift, software companies realized that they needed to have more people that had a business background that could talk to other, you know, business leaders Mm. without it seeming like it's just way over everybody's head. So I I was a part of that and got hired by this software company that moved me out to Boston in 2010. I I mean, I was like, well, I don't have any other serious job offers and I don't really want to do more school because I'm, you know, school was wasn't really, you know, the thing that I, I enjoyed that much anyway. Football. Yeah. <laughs> so football's over. So I'll, I guess I'll just take this opportunity. So that's what moved me out to Boston. And, um, I met my wife, Rachel, not, not long after I moved, because when I moved out there, you know, you, you move and I was trying to find a church to get plugged into and, and you're kind of church hopping. And I ended up settling on this church. And I think, um, we met because she was one of the other people from Missouri, yeah. which was, was strange because that far into the Northeast, I, it, it was very rare to meet anyone from mm. Missouri. But she was from Kansas City, which, like, like I said, is about an hour and a half from where I went to college. And so I actually knew some of the people she went to high school with. Oh, nice. But we had never met each other until we moved to Boston. 
So we met at the church we went to there. And uh, yeah, shortly after, started dating and were engaged and married. And that was uh, that whole 2010 all the way through 2017. Yeah. So you met in 2010, mm-hmm. and then how how long was the engagement? How long we were engaged for a year? Okay, and we were married June 1st, 2013. Wow, and married, yeah. So did your I think church... we dated for about a year too? Okay, yeah. Okay, so you dated for a year, engaged for a year, year. married. Yeah. So about two years before marriage, mm-hmm. did your church um, that you were connected to together do premarital counseling with you guys? Uh, they did a little. Um, we actually got premarital counseling from First Baptist Chesterfield, the church that I grew up in. Oh, nice. Because that's where we got married. Did you just do like a Zoom or something? You know, Zoom it's, it's really funny. Like I said, the church is, you know, traditional um, in, in many aspects, which I really appreciate. And so we, we were doing premarital counseling with the pastor. who He was the pastor for most of my childhood. I think he took over when I was about tw- 10 or 12. And so... When he we asked him to marry us, he agreed to do our premarital counseling. He used uh, it's called Prepare and Rich. It's pretty okay, like well known premarital curriculum. It's really good, and he was really good. But he was <laughs> he was like you know there's this thing called Skype, and I just can't <laughs> I can't figure out how to get it to work. So we're gonna do this over the phone, <laughs> which was like you know thinking about it now, how I'm sure he's probably on Zoom. You know, actually I still follow the church. They like live stream their service now oh, and nice. stuff. But it's just funny how even in 2012, like. The idea of a video call for them was like, that's a little too cutting edge. We're just going to do this over the phone, which we did. We did over the phone. Uh, I think we did one. We did one session in person because we happened to be back in St. Louis for I think okay. a family holiday or something. Nice. But yeah, we did it over the phone, and he's he's the one that actually married us. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And then um, Rachel graduates. Rachel graduated. She graduated more recently, right? While she was here in Pittsburgh. Yeah. So she was finished. She started a PhD program, which is why our Part of why our engagement was so long was we had to kind of work within the cycle of her being off for the summer. So when we got engaged, I think it was like, well, we'll get married the next summer that you're off and have time to plan and do all the wedding stuff. So she finished her PhD program and got what they call a postdoc position here, a postdoctoral position here in Pittsburgh. And so when she finished the Boston section of the PhD, that then led us to um, getting the position here. Um, for her postdoctoral fellowship is what they call it. Mm-hmm. So when she uh, she graduated and walked, I think in it was the summer of 2018. So we were. Still I remember there. seeing pictures. You yeah, guys yeah. left town. And yeah, well, I was saying we went back. Yeah, we went back for the weekend to let her do her final walk because before you walk, I think you have to finish a section of the postdoc position or a part of it. So that's what led to her. Uh, that's what led to us going back to walk uh, in uh, summer of 2018. So yeah, yeah. And so her studies were in psychology, clinical psychology, and yeah. that's a rigorous program there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that? Was that straining for you guys? Um, you know, we, I think made it work because my work is pretty flexible. Um, still working in, in software space. I work from home. I used to travel. I don't travel as much anymore hmm. with COVID going on, but I used to travel as necessary to see customers. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it was rigorous on her and that she may put in long days, um, for the most part, didn't didn't strain us that much because I could do a lot of the around the house or stuff we needed. Nice. Because I was I'm working from home if I'm not traveling to see a customer, so um, it was strenuous in the sense that uh, she would have to do a lot of long hours. And as as the husband, I'm I'm there to support to make sure the house isn't going, you know, overflown with with dirty dishes and oh, stuff yeah. like that. 
But I mean, that's what you sign up for when you that's get married. Right. So I, I, I didn't at all flinch at that that idea of you know yeah she's for the first kind of part of our marriage she's going to be working really hard but this is her passion and I want to see her do it so yeah. you know whatever it was, so it was an expectation yeah from the front end you yeah. knew yeah, yeah I knew going in yeah it wasn't a surprise at all yeah yeah um, so the uh, the software company that you first started out with was it Microsoft it was not okay so how did you get from there to to Microsoft I so when we moved here I was still working at my former company mm. and. When I just happened to have a connection that was working for Microsoft now, or that's working at Microsoft now that I used to know from from my previous company, and he just happened to have a position come open. And so when we moved here, I wasn't necessarily planning on switching jobs, but uh, a spot came open, and it, it was happened to be for a, a guy here in Pittsburgh, and so I ended up taking it. Nice. Um, and that's how I ended up making the switch. Nice. But yeah, my. My career, the number one thing that I've tried to look for is flexibility, because That's Rachel has yeah, it's a high value, yeah. and 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 they, they've been great with that. So it's strange now because now that now it's almost like it's like don't don't travel, don't go to the office, like because because of all the COVID stuff. Sure, um, I think we're right now through October. I could refuse any any business travel scenario if I don't feel comfortable, but I'm okay with that but yeah yeah you know. so you work out of your office in your home and mm-hmm. you're on the phone you're yep. on yep. zoom calls or whatever yep yep on video calls so i could technically tell them i'm not leaving until october which i yeah. won't like i don't mind getting out of the getting right. out of the house but yeah yeah flexibility cool. yeah. do you like what you do uh i do you know we we've uh, rachel and i've had very interesting conversations about this i don't uh maybe perhaps get as much fulfillment out of directly what i do for work as she does mm. so she grew up and i think this is an interesting discussion to have with other christians Rachel grew up knowing exactly what she wanted to do for her career. Hmm. Like, I want to get into this specific section, this specific field of child psychology because I want to help um, children and through research and all that yeah. stuff. Like, she's got very specific uh, aspirations that will fulfill her career-wise. Hmm. Um, I don't. I value more the flexibility yeah. of what what I do, and so I could be um, doing. And maybe that goes all the way back to you know me not being super interested in anything specifically academics and academic wise in school. Um, you know, I can, I, I do, I, I do enjoy it, but I, I would say I enjoy more of the flexibility of what it, what it allows me to do to be able to work from home, to be yeah. able to support our, you know, keep our uh, things around the house in order. And also to be able to, you know, do other things outside of my work, like right. be actively engaged in, in, in ECC. Yeah. So, and you are, and yeah. we'll get into that in a minute. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you come to Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. uh, and, and Rachel's going to be at Western Slike, is that correct? Mm-hmm. And you're working now for Microsoft mm-hmm. from your home office and mm-hmm. traveling a bit. And then um, you show up here at ECC, what, two years ago? Two now? years ago, yeah, 2017. That's yeah. probably June 2017. Did you guys find other churches? Did you visit other churches? Like, how was that? How did you find us? So... I think I've told a couple of people this story. At the time, it was called the Reformed African American Network. Mm-hmm. Now it's called The Witness. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just kind of a, a Facebook group podcast community of, at the time, uh, Reformed African Americans. Now it's just more directed towards black Christians. Mm-hmm. But it was just a podcast and kind of uh, content producing machine that I followed. And when we decided to move to Pittsburgh, I didn't. we don't have any family here. We didn't know anybody. And so they have a Facebook page, thousands of members, and I just posted there. And I was like, hey, we're moving to Pittsburgh. Does anybody know of any good churches starting? And I got 
a list from a couple of different people and eternal city was on there. Interesting. And so we, we knew we always wanted to go to a church that was relatively close to where we are location wise. And so that was certainly a factor. Um, we knew about the X 29 network. I don't think we were an X 29 though at the time. I think we were probably trying to get into it. We were a part of it in the sense that we were a candidate church that needed to fulfill certain requirements. Yeah. And then we did, I think in 2017. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, yeah, we were in the network from 2014 as a candidate church, mm-hmm. and then it took us three years to fulfill our conditions. conditions. And, and believe it or not, the, the one condition that we had such a hard time filling was getting 40 committed people. Mm. So we would get 40 people, and then there'd be some kind of struggle. Man, those are you missed, you missed a lot of fire, fire. Okay. before you got yeah. here. Like, there was... There was a lot of fire and not, or, or yeah, and not a lot of heat. Yeah, it wasn't like mm-hmm. beneficial for the fire. It yeah. was just, hey, that's on fire. Yeah. We need to put that out. Yeah, uh, it didn't warm anybody. It didn't cook any food. It was just, it was damaging fire. So, brother, you came in right when you know things were getting healthy, Good. and and we had forty committed people plus yeah. and people were serving, and you know those first couple years. That's another podcast, but they were not. They were satanic, man. Mm. Like we were getting attacked. Mm. It was bad. Mm. Um, and we told, we were told that we were like, part of our coaching going in was if you've never experienced spiritual warfare, plan a church and watch what happens. Yeah. And man, I, I sleepless nights and mm-hmm. tensions in the family and mm. fighting from without and fighting within it felt very much like Paul's descriptions in Acts and Corinthians. Like yeah. Yeah. I was like, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. I don't know if I can do this. Anyway, that's another podcast. But uh, so we were a part of the Acts 29 network, but we weren't officially a member because of that 40 committed and their definition of commitment. It was like giving, serving, like basically what we would call membership. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. So I think when we were looking at churches, I think we 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 probably knew that this was Acts 29, which we had friends that went to an Acts 29 church in Boston. So we kind of knew what the vibe of those churches Mm -hmm. were. And that was something we were open to. Um, and so that was kind of what led us to checking out Eternal City and, nice. and getting to know the folks here. And, and we ended up liking it and sticking around. Yeah. So, yeah. And now here you are, one of the pastors. Yeah, here we are. How crazy. Here we are. Um, and, and it's just like God to supply what you need when you need it mm-hmm. um, from our end and from your end, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I find this so intriguing about you. And I'd love to hear like the background of this. Mm-hmm. You, you know, we jokingly on the podcast call you the sociologist yeah. and, and you know I'm playing with you yeah, yeah. but but you do this interesting thing every year and I hope you don't mind me telling you you create a tree in your house oh yeah with, with <laughs> the, the Christmas deck, tree yeah the yeah. Christmas tree that has the ornaments that are all the major events of the year mm-hmm. all the social events doesn't matter what they are it mm-hmm. could be in the hip hop world it yep. could be in the political world it yep. could be whatever yeah you, you seem to be very very in tune with what's happening all over the globe um, wh- where did that come from when I think it was maybe four years ago or so, I made a co- I just made a personal commitment for my own growth. Like I said, I was never much into school, but I decided to like I need to read I need to read every day just mm-hmm. for my own personal growth. And I started reading, and I started at first it started you know I was like well I guess I'll read Christian books because that'll be helpful. And I did I read a lot of good Christian books, mm-hmm. and then I just started reading about other topics that interested me, and then. Because I work from home, I think the the nature of podcasts and having something that you can just listen to when you're doing work that doesn't require your uh, full attention, mm-hmm. um, I got into just listening to a lot of podcasts and listening. 
And I think that that's biblical, right? You know, mm-hmm. being quick to listen is a good thing. Like wise, wise people listen. And so I've just, over the last years, tried to expand the amount of voices and perspectives on things that I'm interested in that I can listen to or read about. And I think, honestly, like I, I don't at all think that I have some level of intelligence that's far and beyond anybody else as much as it is I just happen to now have the time to be able to listen and read things and, and I'm taking it as somewhat of a value mm. um, and I really enjoyed it just getting to listen to other perspectives and hear about what's going on um, has has been has been good and I think it's been more important um, at this church and in our previous church to effectively be a church member and I think especially to be an effective uh, church leader we have to kind of know what's going on yeah. and not necessarily like in our local community or even what's going on personally. But I want to know what are the people in our church reading and mm-hmm. what are the different perspectives in our church? What are they hearing or seeing or, or being, you know, pastored by because they get, you know, an hour and a half on Sunday via YouTube and maybe two hours in GCC and the rest of the time yeah. it's all these other. And what's crazy is there's so much content now. It's like unbelievable. Everybody is producing, and it's it's it, the volume and the specificity of the content. Mm. So if you're someone who's a socially progressive libertarian, you've got your own news. Yeah, you got a network go that that can like give you news with your specific <laughs> yeah. spin. Or yeah. if you're someone who's more into, you know, other kind of social, like if you're if you're a, a conservationist and you're big in the, into the Green Party and yeah. the the you know just keeping the sustainability alive. Like there's a whole news feed that you can get for all the global for multiple streams too. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's not the case, right? Like you could say even 15 years ago, it was like four, five news networks that gave everybody what they wanted. And now everybody's hearing these different voices. So I think I'm saying all that to say to, to try to lead or pastor people effectively, it's good to know what they're taking in. Mm -hmm. Not because I agree with it all the time, but I just like want to know like, what are the people who are, I mean, if we look at it now, what's influencing the people who feel like they basically have to stay inside mm. and that we're, we're opening up way too quick from this virus? What's influencing them? What are they leading? What are they hearing? What are they listening to? What are they, you know, what are they being influenced by? And then the opposite. What's, what are the people who think that we should have been open a month ago? What are they hearing? What are they listening to? What are the underlying worldviews in both of those conversations? What are the the presuppositions that both of them bring to the table? And it's very interesting. I was just telling Rachel last night, you can almost kind of predict how people interpret the events that are happening based off the, you can almost predict what, or so you can almost uh, tell what they've been listening to over the last few months based off how they respond and how, you know, if you talk about yeah. this virus with them, I can almost tell like, oh, you've been, you've been listening to more you know, progressive or conservative news spaces and, and it comes out very quickly. Yeah. So, and that's yeah. because you know, the two perspectives and what primarily those two perspectives right. believe and yeah. think should be happening. Right. Right. The values, the presuppositions, the underlying ideals, the things that they kind of see as North stars and us yeah, navigating yeah. this crisis. Like it's just very obvious because we've all been so isolated from each other. You know, I think by nature, maybe a lot of us have been reading and listening to and hearing more things and it is fascinating to have conversations with people just to kind of hear the, the, the spin because we all get spin, right? Yeah, yeah, but to hear sure. the spin that we're all getting. That's helpful, it's, man. It's, yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think is also really interesting uh, about you is you and I share a same personality type as mm-hmm. far as the Enneagram goes. We right. don't worship the Enneagram. We just think it's helpful. Right. Um, nines in particular mm-hmm. find it hard to 
come to their own personal conviction and like stand on it and put it out there against other people's convictions. That's right. one of the personality traits of a nine. Yeah. And they merge very easily with other mm-hmm. views. Have you found that challenging? Like, because you're taking in so many views, like trying to understand. And I, I love, I love your purpose in doing that. You're, you're doing it um, for the purpose of loving other people. You're like, mm-hmm. I, I want to know, you know, I have this responsibility to shepherd and care for people. And, and I want to love people well. And even my neighbors, like, I want to know what is behind the way you see the world. What's mm-hmm. behind your worldview is basically what you're doing this yeah. for. Yeah. Um, but there, there can be a danger and you're taking in. So it's almost like drinking from a fire hose mm-hmm. where it's hard. I think doing that to come to your own settled place mm-hmm. often, you're just like, I don't know. I don't mm-hmm. know. Do you ever find that a problem or not? Uh, I, I think I can. I think especially with this last few months, you know, having this virus kind of news cycle going, um, there has been, there has been, uh, I'd say a, a place of, because you don't get your normal life routine where you get to see people and you know, the, the physical touch we have with people is deeply impactful, just mm-hmm. like it is to be able to get outside. Mm-hmm. And so all of that can drive our anxiety up or down depending on how much we get. And so just staying inside and reading the news all day, um, even if it's to understand people and to love people, isn't necessarily always a good thing. Because we just aren't created to take in that much grief mm. and that much uh, strife. Even with social media, too. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah just, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the Sabbath principle, right? Like, we have to kind of rest from all that at some point. And so it can be because, one, it can just be overwhelming. And you can, you can read all the different perspectives and have, you know, just become cynical. Like, mm. everybody's got a everybody's got a spin that they're going to put on things. And so there is no like real, you know, true North, true North. Yeah. There's no moral absolute here, Mm. but what keeps what I've also, and this was, this was actually this goes all the way back. I think to probably started this some probably midway through college. Um, before I got into reading and just taking in news, I, and to this day, it's, it's something I continue. Like the, the first thing I try to do when I get up in the morning is have some meaningful time with God. Mm. And I think that's what keeps things balanced and what keeps the moral absolutes. Because the news is the news, right? Yeah. But if the first voice I hear every morning and I try to make it the case, the first voice I hear is the Bible and the first person I talk to is God through prayer, mm. that can help ground the moral absolutes and the hope, right? The hope of what we're going to come through mm. out of this season isn't the end of the virus ultimately it's the establishment of God's kingdom. That's right. And so if we can align ourselves with that every day, I think that makes it more helpful and it makes us more equipped to be able to take on and and, and hear and with wisdom engage the the perspectives we get because there are I mean I I I specifically feel for people and and we are in a season right now where I think we have a lot of friends who are spiritual but not religious, right? They fall into that non category. Um, to hear some people talk about these events, it, it, it is life and death. Yeah. Like it's, it's the be all end all. And it there's makes, no hope beyond this world. They, yep. they don't have a yep. new heavens, new earth perspective. Yeah. Or, or one, not, not one that they would maybe say is uh, concrete. Mm. So I, I totally understand why people, some people could be more stressed out about not just this, but just the news in general. I mean, yeah, politics I mean, yeah. and all that. And, yeah. and sadly, good news does not drive numbers. Right. It doesn't. Like you're just right. not as interested you know, if, if there was this huge fight, yeah. you know, or, or something, a, another shooting, like people, I remember sitting, I'll just tell a quick story. I was at the, uh, 
the the MLK conference with Eddie mm-hmm. and Eddie and I went yep. out to eat. We, we, there was a break. They're like, go you know, go to the bookstore, go eat. So Eddie and I took this walk. Like we just we were processing what we were learning, and we went blocks and blocks and blocks trying to find food. When we finally sat down to eat, it was this interesting like I don't know if it's a Bass Pro Pro Shop, but it was like that. It was this crazy mm-hmm. place where there was like all this crazy outdoor decor and fish mm-hmm. tanks inside and uh, so we're sitting at the bar eating because it was the fastest way to get food and uh, and I just remember the screens all around us were just fixed on police cars yeah. with the sirens going and like you couldn't really tell what was going on yeah. but you wanted to watch mm-hmm. because there was police cars and they were you know the lights were going yeah. and and so they they would switch to the news person talking, but then they go right back. And so like your eyes were just kind of glued on like, what's going on? What's happening? Cause you knew something bad was happening, but it was so attractive yeah. where the good news, we, I wouldn't have even noticed. Yeah. I wouldn't have even, I would just been talking to Eddie. Yeah. And I think there's a principle there that we could say bad news is attractive, but not in a good way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's, that's why when Jesus gives the model prayer, give us this day, our daily bread. The mundane but good and faithful provision of God is something for us to focus on mm. and meditate on. And if we don't, we'll just get swept up in like this crazy new event, yeah. this crazy virus, this crazy, this, you know, the election, whatever. And, and those are, those are valid categories we should engage. But if we forget that, like they become all, all consuming, yeah, all consuming. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that's, that's why I appreciate the wisdom of that, that model prayer, the Lord's prayer. Like give us this day, our daily bread, help us to forgive people. Like mm. let's get some of the basic rhythms down. And I, I would encourage people like if that, you know, have that rhythm before you develop a, a habit or a rhythm of intaking news, mm. have helpful. that rhythm of reading the Bible, of praying, of communing with God and prioritize that. Like I, I, I take purposeful breaks from consuming content about the news or about the world or about things I'm interested in. Because I don't want it to become all-encompassing. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to overtake the basic things that God's told me to, to come to him for. My daily bread, to forgive others, to thank him, you know, to go through just basic communion with God. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and having that be the priority, I think, helps people be more effective. Um, you know, there's the idea that, like, we should only focus on the spiritual things. But I think focusing on the spiritual things helps us be more effective and consuming and engaging with the world. Mm. Well, how would you coach someone if they don't have that rhythm of time with God? They're not praying. I mean, they might pray, but it's not anything substantial. Mm-hmm. They don't really read the word, but they're very attracted to what's going on in the culture and in news and in, you know, what's the newest, latest craze and what's the newest, latest controversy. Mm-hmm. How would you coach them if they're Christian? Uh, I'd say take a purposeful time away from the things that maybe are consuming you, um, whether that's through your phone or through the TV or through the, you know, not, uh, whatever social media sites you might be on, um, whatever that purposeful time is, you know, three days, seven days, 40 days, mm. and use that time to develop a relationship and develop a habit of communing with God. Uh, and it doesn't, I, I'm, I'm, I per- personally am, am pretty big on uh, quality over quantity. Mm. Like you don't have to be legalistic about like, I need to pray for three hours a day or I need to do like whatever is meaningful for you. Just like with exercise, like some people can get a great workout in and 30 minutes. Some people need three hours, you know, depending on your season of life, but develop that habit and develop that rhythm and, and, and begin to, uh, appreciate the groundedness and the peace that you experience. Like 
Paul talks about in Philippians 4, like whatever you have seen or learned from me, put into practice in the mm. peace of God, which transcends all our saying, then it'll be with you, right? Mm. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. Like that whole chapter four is all presupposing, like you're going to put into practice what Paul is teaching you, mm-hmm. and then you get the peace of God, right? And then you get the, to have um, your heart guarded in Christ and all that. But I would, I would encourage people to, who are over-consumed, and I think that's a lot of us, overstimulated. Yeah. To I mean, even if you have social media, like mm-hmm. it's... <laughs> It's just there. I mean, the minute you go on, it's like, depending on who your friends are, yeah. is constant controversy, man. Yep. Take a purposeful time away, develop a habit with God. And then as you get back in, engage very purposefully. Um, I have a rhythm of not being on and not consuming content weekly. And I also have, uh, I try to keep a good amount of hygiene around my uh, content that I do take in. Mm. So if the whatever ideology it comes from, if people are overly pessimistic or are uh, antagonistic towards other people, I just don't listen to it. Mm. Um, even if I agree with the, the presuppositions and the worldview of it. And unfortunately, that that, that takes out a lot of Christian mm. things from people sometimes, or it takes out a lot of Christian sites, because if, if people just seem to want to antagonize or want to... Uh, and this is another one. If people are constantly non-charitable towards those they disagree with, I just, for me personally, don't find it helpful to listen to. Mm. And so I try to find sources from, from different perspectives that are charitable, that aren't antagonistic, and that are fact-based. And that's the hygiene I try to keep on all the content I, I, I consume and all the things I read. Mm. So unfortunately, um, what that means is that if people, if I have, you know, if, if there's someone who's always posting, you know, you see the memes that, that really make straw man arguments. Like that's the type of stuff I try to avoid okay. because there's, I mean, I've learned a lot of this from Rachel, but there's a, there's a whole brain process behind it where when you read something that you agree with, even though it doesn't necessarily uh, align with reality, there's this chemical, there's a lot of chemicals, but there's a chemical release in your brain called dopamine mm-hmm. that gives you that rush mm-hmm. that you feel like when you go on a roller coaster or when you see someone you like, or when you're, you have a crush for the first time, so your logic is distorted. Mm. So if you're constantly reading things that give you that dopamine trigger, the truthfulness of them can go down as long as they align with the things that you presuppose. Mm. So that's why people who get real deep into rabbit holes, conspiracy theories, conspiracy theories yeah. uh, on the left or on the right mm-hmm. get pulled into them because there's that dopamine release of like, oh, this like aligns with so many of the things that I want to be true. Mm. And so whether or not it's actually factually you know, provable, it, it becomes secondary yeah. because it aligns with what we want, what yeah. we think, what we want to hear. So if you think that, you know, police are always out to kill black people and are just bloodthirsty mm-hmm. and want to destroy black communities and you constantly read that, you'll be pulled in by easier, less fact-based things. Yeah, it's going to, it's it. going to prove your presuppositions. And, and the opposite is true as well, right? If mm-hmm. you believe that the left is trying to, you know, destroy society and, undercut every Western European value and remove Christianity from everything, the factualness of what you read, the more you read things that are uh, agreeing with your presuppositions, the less factual it'll have to become. Mm. So it's... So you're calling for discernment. Yeah, discernment. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good overarching term. It's discernment. It's being able to... I mean, Proverbs says, right, that one seems right until another comes mm-hmm. and examines mm-hmm. it. Like, it sounds right. But then let the other side come and examine what 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 actually is is said with, with a multitude of counselors. There's wisdom. There's wisdom. Yeah, exactly. That's good. So that that I think that definitely goes into how we consume content. Mm. Um, 
we're in a culture where I think it's safe to say that we see polarization to the extreme. Mm-hmm. Uh, I heard someone say recently they've never seen America so divided except before the Civil War. I don't know if that's fair or not. That could have been provocative itself. But it's certainly polarized, I mean, to say the least, to minimize where polarization is occurring. And I think within the polarization, you have uh, tribes that are not just tribes, but they're tribal in that they're going to war with other tribes, and that is their purpose. So they're very, if you will, violent tribes. Uh, and I'm not talking about those who might write provocatively uh, on purpose, but I mean like literally there is a, a, a desire to see destruction of the other side. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a very warlike mentality. Um, have you given thought to or in your readings, can you tell how we've got here or like why we're here or how do we not tribalize? And, you know, what used to be said in the Christian circles was... Um, you can demonize what you don't agree with, yeah. and then what you demonize, you can destroy. Right, right. You have permission to destroy that person. It's it's almost like you know this is an extreme example, but you know in the Holocaust, the, the Jews were seen Some as human. yeah they were in same with slavery right like yeah. they're not people right uh, they're they're property and so if you can dehumanize and deimago day somebody, yeah. you justify to yourself destroying them. Mm-hmm. And it's a very satanic move. Mm-hmm. And I think that Satan's got a chokehold on our culture where we are very tribalized and we are very warlike in our ideologies and opinions right now. And, you know, I love your, your principle of charity. Um, you know, I think it was Augustine who said in all things, charity, charity. in yeah. all things. Yeah. And, and Jesus even said, and, and, you know, there's many conservative reform Protestants who don't like this, <laughs> love your enemies. Right. Do good to those who yeah. malign you, persecute you. Kevin DeYoung recently jokingly said, do good to those who, who tweet evil about you. <laughs> and, and the idea is we, we don't like that, man. Like we don't know. We want to war with our enemies and we want to see them destroyed and we want to see their, their empire go up in flames and we want to laugh at that. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's Christian too. Like there are mm-hmm. Christians who certainly mm-hmm. would rejoice at the downfall of others where Proverbs speaks very clearly about that. Don't, don't rejoice. rejoice. Yeah when your enemy falls yeah. or God might turn that on you. Right. You right. know, where, how do we get here, man? Um, it's, it's, I mean, I probably a podcast in itself. Hmm. I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of research, I think in the area of social isolation, hmm. even before social distancing. So social isolation people have uh, fewer meaningful relationships and fewer friends and fewer face-to-face contact with people, um, especially diverse groups of people. Mm. So there's lots of studies around. It's kind of that Robert Putnam yeah. bowling alone principle. Yeah, bowling alone. Yeah, exactly. Yep. That's, that's one of the, the seminal works, I think, on that, where uh, it's one thing to read about someone who's different than you. It's another thing to know and to have meaningful relationships mm. with people that are different than you. So I can read about uh, let's let's take one group, and I'm not using this to try to uh, particularly ostracize this group because I think they happen in some in some respects. But let's take people who support Donald Trump. It's one thing to read about them, and especially if I read about them through more progressive sources like the Atlantic, even progressive Christian sources, you know, I'll come away with the impression that they're they're only power hungry. They only want to 
be antagonistic towards LGBTQ people. They only care about um, abortion legislation at the expense of caring about mothers who are, you know, going through really hard times and maybe facing really challenging pregnancies. And they only care about power. And what's particularly harmful about that is that there are elements of truth to all those statements, but they're exaggerated to Mm -hmm. the worst possible conclusions. And so if we take any group and exaggerate the bad things about them to the worst possible conclusions and say that's what Trump supporters are like, especially if we don't know any people who are like that Mm -hmm. or we know very few, um, I think that's how we only continue to see more polarization. Whereas, and I, I count this to be something very fortunate, if I have meaningful relationships with people who are different from me politically, and when there is an election like there was in 2016, we can have conversation, like conversation, you know, mm-hmm. me and you dialoguing mm-hmm. about where we may disagree. And we don't come away necessarily more convinced of the, de- the decision they make, but we do certainly have a lot more humanizing of it, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot more complexity. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 1, the Imago Dei. People are created in the image of God. And so... If I know that people who may differ from me politically, while they may have conclusions I disagree with, a lot of the things that underlie those conclusions are same things that I'm concerned about, especially as a Christian. Like, I am concerned about the unborn. Mm-hmm. We should be concerned about, um, you know, the sexual ethic of our day. Mm-hmm. We should be concerned about, um, you know, keeping people safe. Those are all good things. Yeah. And perhaps I may disagree with the conclusions people arise at. But the more I can sit and talk to people and know people who are different than me, um, the more that I will have a much more compassionate interaction with them. Because while they are, in one sense, people whom I disagree with politically, they could also be people who I enjoy hanging out with Mm -hmm. when we don't talk about politics. Mm -hmm. And so when we begin to reduce people to their views on any particular issue, I think that's where the polarization starts. Mm -hmm. When it becomes this person who is a Trump supporter or this person who is a part of the radical left or this person who is a socialist and not this person who I would really enjoy having a drink with Mm -hmm. or this person who I really would enjoy playing basketball with. Um, I think that's where the polarization starts. Unfortunately, what's happening is those are becoming like the precursors for social interaction. Mm. So for example, I think it's one of the dating sites, I want to say it, dating in, in very loose scare quotes. Mm-hmm. I want to say it's uh, Tinder. Like you can check political views <laughs> on people before you consider doing an illicit sinful hookup with them, which is just like, it's crazy. It's, it just, it shows how we define people, yeah. right? Like, do I want to be friends with someone who thinks this way politically? Yes mm-hmm. or no. So before I even have the chance to like get to know someone, um, I, I can, filter them out of my life. And I think even people of, of all ideologies, I think are realizing that they're like, Oh, I actually don't know that many people who differ than me. Mm. And we I can only, live in our own ideological bubble. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the bubble effect for sure. And so I think what that leads to is an overly exaggerated straw man of what people actually think or believe. Mm. And I'm not saying there aren't significant differences that sure. need to be talked about. There are for sure. Um, but what I am saying is if we only read about people, or we only talk about people and not talk to people, I think that's where a lot of the continued tribalization comes from. And it's what I find maybe particularly unfortunate is that seems to happen within Christian spaces too. Mm. Um, and with, 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 with Christian content. So I think the more we can get to actual conversations with people, I think the, the better off we'll be.
It's good. It's yeah. really helpful. Yeah. So you're, you're calling for relational approaches to, uh, disagreements versus yeah. gathering a mass of people who agree with you and then putting them against yeah. and warring with yeah. the other mass that, you know, yeah, it, it's, that was uh, that's acts two, right? I think we maybe under appreciate the togetherness of acts two. Mm. They were together in the temple courts, you know, breaking bread in one bread, another's, homes, another's homes under the apostles teaching. Mm-hmm. And so if you have radical togetherness, um, which a lot, a lot of, I mean, again, even before social distancing, you know, how much were we valuing just getting together and breaking bread mm. and being around each other and talking mm-hmm. with each other? And I think Eternal City has been very purposeful about that, which I very, yeah. very much appreciated. But um, yeah, I think we shouldn't, if when we come out of this social distancing phase, maybe think back about like the, the value of getting together and being with people and praying with them, eating with them, fellowshipping with them, mm-hmm. all that I think will go a long way in making our discourse around tough issues a lot more, uh, a lot more civil. Mm. It's helpful. Yeah. And, and I think that as Christians, we need to realize, you know, it, it, I'll paraphrase C.S. Lewis in mere Christianity. He mm-hmm. said, uh, you've never, you've never met a mere mortal, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. you've only met immortal people. Mm-hmm. And then he says, it's political kingdoms and nations yeah. and ideologies. These are all small yeah. a- in comparison to a person. They're like a gnat, yeah. you know? And, yeah. and what's so interesting is we we're so willing to throw people away, yes. but we're so committed to an ideology yeah. or a, or yeah. a party or yeah. a, and, and they're temporary, man. Mm-hmm. Like people are eternal. And, and so again, satanic, we, we, the most it's valuable and the most lasting things yeah. are the things that we would love to see drug through the mud. Yeah. Yeah. And the things that are going to pass away yeah. are the things we're so committed to. Yeah. Satanic, man. Yeah. Like, I think if we have eyes to see, Satan's fingers are in everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, to a degree that we just don't perceive. We're, we're spiritually blind is mm-hmm. a good way to say it. Mm-hmm. And if we see the evil one at work in all of our lives, you know, we, we, Satan has done a good job at pushing his work to the extremes of horror movies. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the exorcism of Emily Rose and these types of things. That's satanic activity. But, but you wanting to see another human being destroyed because they believe differently than you, that's satanic. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't think it. We think it righteous. And that's another really twisted thing. You know, one of the things you listen to Marvel, you know, enthusiasts and they're like, man, the, the craziest thing about that, the evil villain Thanos is like, he really believed he was doing the right thing. Right. And the evil that he was committing doing genocide, he thought it was the right thing. He was being righteous by doing it. And that's a man, if you can get people to believe that they're doing right by actually doing evil you've you've been really twisted and affected and i think the this the particularly devious thing about that is it switches the principle that jesus talked about removing the plank from our own eye before mm. we try to remove the Matthew speck seven. from yeah from our brothers so you know again the lord's prayer forgive us our trespasses as we forgive each other as we forgive one another right so if my what's interesting is that a lot of the ideology is never about self-examination. Mm. It's, it's those people. Other examination. It's, 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 if we could get the left, the libs, the conservatives, the non-tolerant people, like those, are the, those people are the problem. But it's never what have I done or what mm. have I contributed or how can I 
And, and that's the most empowering thing about the gospel is it, it encourages us to look at ourselves and say, I need to repent. Mm. I need to turn to God today. I need mercy. I need grace before I talk about what anybody else needs. I mean, that's, I think it's a, I want to say it's a 12 step principle, like clean up your side of the street before you want to go meddle in what everybody else is doing, like control what you can control. Own your own junk, which is from yeah. Jesus. That's yeah. Matthew 7. Yeah. So, and unfortunately, tribalism is those people out there, whoever they are, whoever the, those people are, that's the junk we need to own. Mm. Those are the people we need to take care of. That's what's really going to move the needle forward. When in any, I think in any society, the lowest common denominator for change is the individual. So if I can own my own junk, if I can, you know, clean up my own house, clean up my own house, that's the most effective and most direct means that I can have to make society better. I agree with that. And if I'm married, if I have kids, if I have roommates, like that's, that's my next circle of influence. Mm. But if it's only, you know, whoever that enemy is that we need to go after, then it's, it's so counterproductive that it, it has to be from Satan. Right. Mm. If I'm, if I'm, you know, that person who is waiting for that group of people to change for society, but not taking advantage of the things I can be doing, self-reflecting on, cleaning up my own junk, mm-hmm. repenting of my own sin. Mm. Yeah. It's helpful. Um, and, and you're right in that uh, if, if we want to ask someone to start somewhere, we would want to say as pastors, look at your own Sorry. life. Yeah. If you're single, what, what sins are you allowing? Like right. what is the right. sin that so easily entangles you right. that you are not dealing with it. You're letting it slide. Like, are you more concerned with what's going on in the culture than your time with God? Right. Right. You know, yeah. So like all that is a miss. If all that is a miss, could that be why you have so much right. turmoil? Thanks. Right. Yeah. Then yes. If we're married, that's your next biggest yeah. responsibility. How's your marriage going? Excuse me. How is your, you know, relationship with your spouse? Then with you have kids, are you neglecting your children? Are you discipling them? Like, how is your own personal responsibilities going? God mm-hmm. is going to hold you accountable for them on Judgment Day and yep. what you did there, especially if you're the the leader of the home. Um, and then your church family. You know, like, are you more concerned with what's going on in th- these other churches than you are with your own church? Yeah. Are you just there to complain or see yeah. what's wrong or pick at? Or are you actually involved? Because God is going to ask you very specific questions about the responsibility he's given you. Mm-hmm. That's what's, that's what I find, especially being, you know, working with, with, um, the elders here is the urgency with which things are always reported on, like mm. Christian and non-Christians, like this is a huge issue that's pressing. We need to address this now. And even you'll see other, other, other people talk about or put, you know, put it out there on Facebook. Like we need to address this political issue. Mm-hmm. And it's like, look, person who just posted that. If I had three hours to sit down with you, we would talk for 30 seconds about that political issue. And we Mm. would spend an hour and a half on your marriage. We spend 30 minutes on your own personal life. We spend Mm -hmm. 30 minutes on your kids. We spend another hour on your involvement in church. Like those kind of priorities seem to get out of whack when Mm. we only focus on things that are out there. When what you said is, is so true that we have so many other things that we deal with as pastors that like, yeah, I, I spend we spend a lot of time just dealing with marriage. Mm-hmm. Like, put aside all the news and the political stuff. Like, a lot of what we deal with is p- 
people struggling to yeah. love the, that person closest to them. Yeah. So, you know, when there's so much, and, and I do think we should be responding and, and taking things, you know, that happen out there and applying a biblical worldview to them. But it, it just is oftentimes not reflective of the actual work that's, that's done. That's right. You know, like I'm, you spend a lot of time helping people get uh, through a tough season with depression mm-hmm. or deal with an issue with another believer in church. But, but the, the like, I remember, and this still happens today when, when the first kind of round of racial tension started happening around 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. there were a lot of statements being made. Like if your church isn't addressing this, this Sunday, find a new church. And it's like, look, I care about those things, but mm-hmm. I also know the reality of people in my congregation. And some people lost their job this week. Some people had a mm-hmm. really tough fight with their wife. Some people have kids that are sick, or some people have a family member that's sick. Mm-hmm. And so when we kind of throw the political, social things to the top of the rung and say they must be addressed now, we're actually doing harm to people mm-hmm. a lot of times. That's helpful. Because... If your marriage is on the rocks, I don't care who you voted for. Right. I don't. <laughs> and it's not going to help you spiritually at right. all. Like you right. need to get right with your wife. Right. And there's probably a lot of personal things you're doing that um, could need to be repented of. Mm. And so we'll deal with your political views when we can deal with them. But yeah, priorities. Yeah. It, it often gets our priorities out of whack. That's good. Yeah. That's really helpful, man. Um, yeah, this is, this is so helpful. Uh, what would you say to anyone listening to this right now who really believes that it's their responsibility to come down hard on whether it's a theological issue or a social issue or a political issue? So what we, what we don't, what we are not saying you and I right now is that there are not bad ideas out there right. and that there are not ideas that don't have consequences that are dangerous and deadly. We're not saying that. Yeah. Like there are dangerous ideologies. There are deadly things people believe and they do result in actual harm of people and Mm -hmm. death. So we're not saying we're not minimizing that. Um, but what we can do, uh, is make the person into a caricature Mm -hmm. Uh, and then treat them as this cartoon character when they're not that. They're not all this issue. Yeah. You know, I think the way you said it earlier was, oh, they're just a lib or they're all just a they're Trump supporter. They're right. whatever. Right. Whatever we would call them. Um, and, and so this cartoon caricature of them emerges in our mind, which then allows us to, you know, diminish them mm-hmm. in our respect, in our thinking, in our language, in our conversations about people. Um what would you say to people to help them to maybe be discerning so that they don't have terrible, dangerous ideas? Like we would not say that those who are members of the KKK and think right. that's a good thing right. are, oh, that's, that's okay. You know, that's right. an okay ideology. It needs right. to be repented of. Right. Right. <laughs> those who, you know, we would say that, uh, though we would want to be careful in how we say this, we would say that those who think abortion is okay and right and good, we would want to say, no, that's not right and good. God would call it murder. But mm-hmm. we want to be careful in how we say that, mm-hmm. depending on where they come from. Um, Eddie and I, you know, it just made me think, and, and I don't have the name of the documentary, but Eddie and I watched a documentary uh, with another group of, of uh, church Christians, 
And it was about uh, an African-American man who was a musician who would go and personally meet with KKK members. Oh, uh, I think I've heard, and he would I think befriend I've read that story. Them. Yeah. And, um, and, and they would end up becoming friends. Mm-hmm. And he saw many of them converted. But it was a brave move for him to go and, like, you know, there's do- there's in the documentary, like, he's sitting on the front porch and, you know, the guy's pulling out the hood and he's pulling out the shields and he's mm-hmm. pulling out the stuff and... Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's pretty remarkable, man, mm-hmm. um, that like, you know, instead of wanting to shoot the guy in the head and see him eliminated, right. rather he's like, I'm going to go talk to this guy and show him that he doesn't know, he doesn't know me. Mm-hmm. And once he gets to know me, he'll probably like me. And that generally yeah. is what happened. Yeah. Um, so we wouldn't ever want to affirm sinful, deadly ideas, mm-hmm. hate groups. We wouldn't want to do that. But at the same time, we would also want to love the person, which is really supernatural, right? Like mm-hmm. it's impossible in your flesh to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going somewhere with that brother, but uh, I was going to ask you a question out of that, but I can't think of what the question well, was. I think the, the <laughs> idea you were getting at was how do we correct wrongdoing and falsehood mm. while at the same time not loving the person, loving the person. Yeah. yeah. So we, we, we were talking about this in GCC this week, actually, a little bit. Our gospel center communities are, are small groups that we meet in. And we were talking about the passage where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, the one you preached on Sunday. And um, I think what we were getting to at the core of the issue was, was that Jesus's touch was the one that like instantly brought healing to that man's hand. Mm. And I think when we enter into conversations where there's different ideologies that we know, let's, let's assume that they're wrong. They're not just like differences of opinion and how we go about something. It's not just a difference in methodology. Like the underlying worldview in this is wrong. Mm-hmm. It's racism or it's, you know, uh, it's, it's murder or it's things that actually harm people. We can communicate truth clearly and boldly. But what I think we also have to realize is that just like the man with the withered hand as the, the Pharisees were standing there like, uh, he's not going to do like, is he gonna is he gonna heal this man or not? Yeah. Like we can be the ones who are um, self righteous enough to think that our opinions are going to change people, mm. when really, yes, I want to articulate truth. Yes, I want to be able to defend the truth. But at the same time, the the, the deepest need for the racist, for the murderer, for the eugenicists is for Jesus to touch their heart Mm -hmm. and heal it. Mm -hmm. And so if I can communicate truth in a way, knowing that Jesus can ultimately change this person's heart, life, mind, I'm much less burdensome and feel much less pressure. And and I can personally attest to this. I feel much less of a burden to try to convince someone of something and much more of a burden to communicate the truth and trust Jesus to change the person's worldview, heart, all that stuff. Mm. Um, cause I think there is certainly a way in which these discussions can happen in our own strength and can happen apart from the reality of spiritual warfare mm. and knowing that the enemy has blinded people. And just like you said, it was Ephesians, it was Ephesians, uh, Ephesians two. Like we were, we were all in darkness, yeah. you know? And so following the prince of the power of the air, spirit is not working sons of disobedience. Mm hmm. So yeah, I think that that's a component that we forget a lot of times because if I think it's my argument that's going to change someone or mm. it's my perspective, then what I'll try to do is say it harder or more articulately mm. or longer or with more force. And that only goes so far. 
But if I believe that just like Jesus touched that withered hand and it was healed, that Jesus can touch someone and convict them of their sin, I'll still communicate the truth, but I can do it with a lot more confidence. Mm. And I think maybe a better word, a lot more rest. Mm. Like, this is not my fight. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to pray and I'm going to communicate the truth. And as far as it's available for me to be able to defend people, I'll defend the weak. If people are being exploited or taking advantage of, I'll defend them. But I know that there's a deeper battle being fought here. Mm. And I think that would give us a lot of rest in these conversations. Because I think that's where people get weary. Is it's, it's, you know, racism is still a reality. Or babies are being aborted. Or people are believing terrible political ideologies. And it's my job to fix it when it's mm. not our job. That's helpful. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it, um, I was just... I was just on an accident on call with several other, well, hundreds of other pastors in Paul Tripp, and he was talking about... Yeah, um, that's, yeah, it leads to a lot of despair, right? Yeah, yeah. He was saying, like, he physically will take... He'll take his hands, he said, and he'll take people into his hands, and he'll literally move them over and hand them over to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And he said it's unburdening him yeah. rather than him, because he said, I'm not designed to bear these burdens, and yeah. if I try to, yeah. it's going to crush me. Yeah. So he, he does this physical act where he gathers them in his hands, and he literally will move his hands over and release them. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think in the same way we can do that, where yeah. you know we are. It, it's really helpful to know how small we are, mm-hmm. like how in a good way, insignificant we are because the burden is not on us. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. Uh, And so these are God's, ultimately God's fights. Mm -hmm. He doesn't call us to fight them. Uh, And, and, you know, then you get into different, well, how do we fight and what's the methodology? We do play a role for sure. I'm not at all diminishing that we play a role. But I agree with you that it's, you will be much less, energized and equipped for the, for the battle that we're in. Uh, if you're not handing the ultimate responsibility and in your mind, acknowledging this is not ultimately my fight here. Right. Right. This is God's. Yeah. 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 Same for souls, you know, Mm -hmm. same goes for the, the, the salvation of souls. Like that's not ultimately our responsibility. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 That's a very similar conversation around evangelism. It's, it's our responsibility to share and to, you know, when, you, when you say responsibility, um, one of our, our pastors in, uh, at our former church used to always say, you don't have to, you get to. Mm. We get to evangelize. Yeah, that's good. We get to share with people about what Jesus has done for us. But is it my personal burden to convince someone? It's not. It's not. Mm. And I was actually in a very interesting conversation with a friend who... who probably would cons- would self-describe himself as agnostic atheist and was kind of wrestling through that discussion of, you know, how, how do Christians live with themselves mm. if there's these ultimate consequences that people will be facing, you know, hell, which is still a doctrine, yeah. not one that everyone believes at the moment, but still a doctrine, right? Yeah. So if you believe... And as, we affirm that. Yeah, right. We, uh, uh, most evangelicals, I think, still would, but it's becoming I, less popular, Yeah. right? But you believe that people will spend eternity separated from God mm-hmm. and at the same point, um, like, can live with yourself when people don't decide they don't want to, decide they don't want to follow them. And I'm like, yeah, I mean... I feel a I feel a desire to communicate that to people absolutely, um, and not just so they don't go to hell, but so they experience joy, so yeah, they experience yeah. what I what I not got. just the negative, exactly. 
what I got when I was in seventh grade, that abiding sense that God's with me, mm-hmm. that he's for me, that I don't have to fight for my own worth or righteousness. Like I want people to experience that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I trust God. I mean, I trust that no one is going to be this. And I know you could parse this sentence really specifically theologically. No one's going to be forced against their will into his presence. And no one's going to have a desire to follow him and be forced out of his presence. Like human, God's sovereignty and human will are in some divine mystery compatible. Yeah. That yeah, I we would quite, say they're quite they're hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. That's the way we would say it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, even in sharing with him, I was like, you know, you clearly know the what's at stake here, but you've got things that you're wrestling with. And so I don't feel a, a burden to try to convince you as much as I do just to be share the good yeah, news. Share the good news. Be, be with you. Be your friend. And yeah, trust that God yeah. and his timing will will awaken you just like he would anyone else. Because I, I also know in my own story that I was in that same place and mm-hmm. there was no convincing that was going to just push me over the edge. Mm-hmm. It was an awakening. Um, sitting in church every week, you know, having my parents be there, waking me up, making me listen to the pastor, all mm-hmm. that, you know, that wasn't enough to push me over. It really yeah. was truly God awakening something in us. So it gives us a rest, I think. I agree with that. Yeah. yeah. And, and there is a, a sense in which we do share, because the gospel is the power of God and salvation, mm-hmm. but the we don't save people. And right. that's... Over and over in the Bible, yeah. right? Paul says, "I planted, Apollos watered, God made it grow." Mm-hmm. Um, and and I agree with you that it, it is helpful to remind ourselves: look, I'm I'm not going to be the one who's ultimately responsible for your eternal soul being saved or lost. That's mm-hmm. not my it's not my my deal to to carry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's okay to feel a burden for the lost, but we shouldn't. We're not the savior. Yeah. Yeah. And we're not the condemning judge either. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, the gospel, the good news is that God did not send his son into the world to condemn yeah. the world, but that the world might be saved yeah. through him. Yeah. Yeah. You know, John 3, um, 16 through 20. Mm-hmm. And so on that note, I think this would be a good place to end, Justin. Um, the, the, the way you share the gospel, I think, is, is helpful because you talk about inviting people into like the joy of, of the Lord and the mm-hmm. joy of salvation and a lot, you know, and, and it is what it is. Some people will just give the negative consequences and don't you want to escape these consequences? Right, right. But as I've heard you explain it, you invite people into the joy, into the feast, right. uh, while not excluding the, the consequences. Mm-hmm. So maybe we could end this by you, you know, maybe thinking of someone who is listening to this, who might not know the Lord mm. and, and they, they are without Christ. And, and mm. how would you invite them in? Should I tell them Jesus is king? Can <laughs> we just wrap it up there? <laughs> refer it's, back to another yeah, podcast. Just refer them back to another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and there's maybe something pulling at a deep place in your heart, kind of tugging at you. That could be God calling you into relationship with himself, the one that you were created for. Um, And that's because as Christians, we believe everyone's created in God's image. Mm -hmm. So if you're alive and you have a pulse and a heartbeat, God created you with unique value, dignity, and worth. Mm -hmm. And he demonstrated that not only does he create us in his image, but he wants to have relationship with us. And the things that we experience in this world that are consequences of that relationship are what we would call sin. Mm -hmm. So... 
things that we do that we know are wrong that are apart from God's will. There are also things that we probably don't know that we're doing that are apart from God's will, but all that leads to us feeling this separation from God. And so what God did to reconcile us back to himself, to pull us back into relationship with him, was send Jesus as the perfect model for what it means to be human, for what it means to follow after God. And Jesus lived this perfect life so that those of us who feel that tugging in our heart, that we're created for more, could enter into that relationship with God. So when Jesus lived his life, at the end of his life, he was punished, and he took a punishment that wasn't his, but that was ours, mm. because our sins have a consequence, and they have a, an end result, an end reality that will lead from us being eternally separated from God. So when Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? That's that emptiness, that's that separation that we mm. experience and will experience the more that we rebel against God. But for us, for us who are alive today, who can listen to a podcast or consider an idea, we have the ability to do what's called repentance, which means to turn from our previous way of thinking and to submit to God and to turn to his way of thinking and to turn to his way of believing. And the perhaps the first step for someone listening to this podcast would be to admit that they need God, that they need a savior, and specifically that they need Jesus to be that savior. Mm-hmm. And so this could be your opportunity to to pray and to invite God into your life. And, and I'm not at all saying, you know, that there's this magic prayer that you can mm-hmm. pray that's going to, that's going to make you, um, uh, that's going to make you a new person. What I am inviting you to, and what I invite myself to every day is to turn from my sin and turn to God. Mm. And that's what we can all do. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to do that, you have the information, the contact on the website, and you can follow up with uh, myself or with one of the elders. And the thing that I think perhaps we lose in America is we're very individualistic. And mm-hmm. so we see uh, religion as a, as a, as a purely individualistic uh, pursuit, where I think the biblical vision, and this maybe goes back to our conversation about diversity, we, you especially see this in other cultures, I think the more biblical vision is this is something we do together. Mm-hmm. So you can come and you can learn more about what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to seek after him and what it means to live a life that's submitted to him. And we believe that that is the, 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 the life that we were all created for. So we would love to be on that journey with you. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's where I'd leave it off. That's good, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Brother, I appreciate... You're spending however many minutes this what was. was no. Right, right at 12. Nice. Quite, quite some time here. Yeah. Any last things you want to leave with the listener before we sign off? Wash your hands. <laughs> use hand sanitizer. <laughs> put on some lotion afterwards. Keep it moist. And uh, hopefully we'll get through this thing. Yeah. But Amen. no, it, it's, it's uh, I think the, I guess the, the thing I would leave is if people want to talk more, I think, is my email on the website now? Uh, Justin at eternalcity.org. Okay, yeah. So our contact information is out there. So please feel free to follow up with the church if you want to talk or learn more. We'd love to walk with you. Amen. All right, guys. Peace.